Our second reading is from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 10, verses 32 to 45. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. And they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. Jesus said to them, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink, or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, We are able. And Jesus said to them, The cup that I drink you will drink, and with the baptism with which I am baptized you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. The word of the Lord. It's not uncommon to get it all wrong. And sometimes getting it all wrong is amusing. I don't know if any of you remember the Amelia Bedelia books about the house cleaner who takes everything literally. And so Mrs. Rogers says, change the towels, plant the bulbs, and dress the chicken for dinner. And she does just that. She goes with scissors and cuts the towels up so they look very different. She takes the bulbs out of the light sockets and she plants them in a pot of soil. And she takes the chicken and puts clothes on it and sets it out so it's ready for dinner. Sometimes getting it all wrong is amusing. Sometimes you have to look back on it for it to be amusing. I remember the day years ago when my mother was frantically getting the house ready for a dinner party. My sister and I were very little, and we saw her going about getting everything ready, putting things away, cleaning things, wiping things down. Well, we thought once she disappeared upstairs, I think to get dressed for the dinner party, that we were going to help. So my sister, being older, helped me to figure out how to get rags and put dish soap on him, and then we started washing all the windows with dish soap. Well, for those of you who haven't tried that before, what ends up happening is smeary, soapy streaks over windows and doors anywhere that our little two- and four-year-old hands could reach. It was not quite what she was looking for. Sometimes we get it all wrong, and it's amusing, right? Sometimes we get it all wrong, and it's disastrous, 
it can have life implications for us that carry on and on and on. In the story that we had read out of Mark 10 today, the disciples get it all wrong. First, it's James and John, and then it's the rest of the disciples. They seem to get it wrong time and again. And one of the hard parts in reading anything like this is to recognize that it's not the disciples, those guys back there who get it all wrong, but rather they represent us. When we see the disciples getting something wrong, we need to stop for a moment and say, where do I fit into this story? How do I, in the same way, hear the words of Jesus and go out and stick light bulbs in a pot? How do we do the same thing? So it starts with James and John. Now, Jesus has just pronounced, I'm going to Jerusalem to die on the cross. And the very next thing that James and John do is they approach Jesus and say, hey, Jesus, just one question, just one request, do you mind? And it fits so dissonantly with what he has just said to them. It's, it's unbelievable to our ears when we hear them say it. But they say, can we sit at your right and left hand when you come into your glory? Can we sit at your right and left hand when you come into your glory? That word glory, we've talked about it here before. It's a Hebrew idea, a Jewish idea that means weightiness. It means something impactful and lasting. So the glory of an aircraft carrier moves out of its way every rowboat. The aircraft carrier has more glory, more weightiness, more impactfulness than a rowboat. That's what that word glory means. And in many ways, we all are seeking glory. That idea of glory is, we play it out in this way. I want to be somebody. I want a name for myself. I want to have impact and make a difference in this world. Or simply, I want to be recognized and accepted by others. All human beings and philosophers throughout the centuries have been looking into this very subject, are looking for meaning and purpose in life. We all want to be impactful. We want to last. We want to be someone. That longing for purpose plays out in us in another way of saying the pursuit of glory. The problem is we seek glory on our own. We seek to be impactful and have meaning and purpose on our own. But glory, according to the Bible, is always derivative. There is only one true mover. There is only one who is lasting and weighty. And we are meant to find our purpose and meaning in him. And on top of that, we often get glory all wrong, much like the disciples did. It's not what we tend to think because the kingdom that Jesus came to bring is an upside-down sort of kingdom. See, James and John are thinking about Jesus entering into his glory and they are probably confusing their own views and their culture's views of what that meant. In that day and age, the first century Jewish mindset was that a kingdom that Jesus kept talking about involved a throne. It always meant political power. And in an honor and status culture, if you came into a kingdom, it meant you were the highest ranking person everywhere around. So James and John have been following Jesus for three years, and he keeps talking about a kingdom, and they keep thinking a throne, political power. Jesus is the next Caesar. They mix their own cultural views with their assumptions about Jesus. 
They also have this idea that God blesses the faithful, which was a very first century Jewish understanding. You see, they had this idea that if you were wealthy and healthy, it was because you were faithful and God was blessing you. And the opposite was also true. Poverty and sickness and being a slave was indicative of unfaithfulness. God was cursing you. Jesus, of course, overturns that with the blind man in John 9 when the people ask, who sinned, this man or his parents? And Jesus said, that's the wrong question altogether. I have come that I will bring glory in every situation. James and John don't get Jesus' kingdom. They want honor. They want positions of status. And of course, when the others hear about it, they also get it all wrong. They are, it says, indignant. And the thing is, the other disciples are indignant not because, just because James and John are asking for the right hand and left hand of glory, the seats of authority and glory and honor. It's because James and John got there first. That's where they want to be. What, what are you doing? How can you take our place? How do you know I'm not the one that's supposed to sit there? And of course, it's not just the disciples who want places of glory and honor, who are indignant when their brothers are asking for it. We all struggle to get the sort of kingdom that Jesus was bringing because it is completely counter to every culture that's ever existed, and it's counter to our natural tendencies. Jesus has to lay it out explicitly to them, and he does so in verses 42 to 44. We read, as Jesus is finally talking to all the disciples, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them, but it should not be so among you. He starts off by talking about don't be like the Gentiles. And as a Jew, he was talking about that not just in the sense of another ethnicity, but rather Gentiles represented the culture and world apart from God. And so he's saying, most of your natural tendencies, most of our cultural assumptions are foreign to the ways of God. Be suspect of whatever you naturally think God is calling you to, just because we are sinful and we live in a culture that assumes certain things. He's saying, are you sure it's not a Gentile culture that you're stepping into? And then he gives the explanation of what he's really calling, calling them to. It shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. To be great is to be a servant. If you want to be first, you need to be slave of all. A servant and a slave, as it would be today, even more so back then, was the lowest. You had no rights. You had very little protection. And this was in an honor and shame culture, in a status-oriented culture, in a hierarchical culture. The servant and the slave was the lowest the non-human. Jesus is saying, you want to be great? You want to be honored in God's eyes? Then be no different than the lowest person in the entire society. Jesus' call contradicted every understanding that these guys had about prosperity and blessing for faithfulness. It challenged their desire for honor and status that was so natural to them. 
Jesus is pushing something that is totally different for them. The kingdom of God, in the kingdom of God, greatness is serving. To be first is to be the lowest person in the entire community. And if you really think about it, even though it's, it's foreign to them, it's, it's, it's foreign to us as well. It contradicts our natural tendencies. And we see this played out, this whole idea that Jesus is talking about, about greatness in servanthood and about being first by being a slave in our confession of faith that Corky led us in in Philippians 2. In Philippians 2, it's this great declaration about who Jesus is, and it talks about how he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. But it starts off with a little precursor in Philippians 2, verses 3 and 4, where Paul lays it out in advance, and he says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Your attitude should be the same, be the same, not beg the same, should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, and then the rest is what we actually confessed in our confession of faith today. Paul, in almost an exact parallel to what Jesus is saying, points out that the way of Christ is the way of selflessness. Not pursuing your own ends. Considering others better than yourself. To have the humility, the same attitude of Christ Jesus, who did not exploit his power for his own good, but laid down his glory and his power for the good of all others. The kingdom of God, 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 Philippians 2, that Jesus talks about in our passage is an upside-down sort of kingdom. It pulls us out of ourselves to lay our lives down before and for others. In this upside-down kingdom, other people are central. We are not. You know, it's interesting that in the Bible, and especially in the New Testament, when you talk about serving God, Serving God always involves serving other people. So Christian spirituality is not primarily about you praying in a cave. It's you praying with, over, and for other people. Christian spirituality always drives us deeper and deeper into human relationships. In some religious ways, you detach from humanity. With Jesus, you always enter deeper into relationships, deeper into humanity. In Mark 10, Jesus calls the disciples and calls all of us to give ourselves in loving, humble service to others. That's not the disciples, nor our own natural inclination. Certainly not our idea of what greatness or success looks like. But Jesus is talking about the greatness of being a servant. What does it look like? What does it look like to be the kind of servant that Jesus is pointing at? What does the servant life look like? Well, I just want to hit on a couple of different areas, not an exhaustive list, but just some things that came to my head as I was meditating on this this week to get our own brains thinking about what God might be calling us to if we're to be servants and slaves of all. The first thing is this, a servant is selfless. 
Jesus says, I want you to be slave of all, meaning of all people. To look for others' needs, others' good over your own. To be selfless is incredibly hard because we are naturally very good at being self-centered people. We're constantly searching for our own place, feeding our own needs, trying to push out our own glory. We see this in a bunch of different areas, but let me just name two. Control and worry. We are selfless, pushing out and seeking our own glory in whatever area we seek to control the most. Whatever it is that I hold to most tightly is where I'm seeking my own glory. The same is true about worry. What is worry? Worry and anxiety is this idea that I know what's best for me and I can't really trust God with my future. I can't really trust him with what's next. And so I'm worried and anxious about it. It's a turning inward, focusing on self and trying to seek and achieve my own glory. To be a servant is the opposite. It's to be other-centered. It's to be the kind of person who walks into a room and is always asking questions of the other person, engaging the other person. Not just telling them something you want to tell them or ignoring them, which is one of my more favorite moves. I've been called out by family members of mine for walking into the house past groups of people and going on my way to do something that I have to do because it's very important, which is really just me being focused on myself and not recognizing that there's other humans to engage. To turn from whatever it is that I I think is so important, I'm so busy with, to recognize that there's humans around me. When I walk past somebody, it's me being consumed with myself. It's not being a servant. A servant is selfless. A servant is secondly, humble. Think about how, what a reverse this is to what Jesus is talking about. The greatness is found in being a slave or a servant. Or in Philippians 2, where Paul says, consider others better than yourself. You know, we are people who constantly wrestle with pride over humility. And the, the clear teaching of Jesus is that humility is the way of Jesus. But we're proud people. And we're constantly the sort of people who are having our feelings hurt, we're feeling slighted, defensive, holding grudges. We use power, control, manipulation to get our own way. We do it at home with a silent treatment. We do it at work in the way that we finagle our way. We do it in the way that we respond when we are not invited to something constantly slighted, constantly holding grudges. And it's because we see ourselves as deserving. We're trying to demand our rights at all points. It's our pride. Humility is so different than that. Humility doesn't care about my rights. Humility gives up my rights for the benefit of others. The humble person will do anything and associate with anyone because they're living for another's glory, not for their own. And a humble person, I've found, is the sort of person who can celebrate when somebody else is rejoicing. 
This is one of the hardest things to do. It's where our humility is tested the most. When somebody else is succeeding, especially in an area that we care about, that we can go along and cheer them on. I remember seeing a kid do this not long ago. He lost playing time on his team because a friend of his was performing better. And while he was hurt by it, I also was so excited to see him celebrate when his friend was performing really well. He cheered when the friend hit a home run and wasn't slighted, wasn't jealous. There was a love for his friend that was born out of a humility to recognize this is a good thing. My friend hit a home run. Why shouldn't I cheer? Can we do that when we lose playing time and somebody else scores the touchdown? When somebody else has a girlfriend? When somebody else's kids get into a good college? Can we rejoice with them? It takes humility, the humility of a servant. A servant is thirdly generous. In verse 45, Jesus says that the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom. Service is giving. One commentator said the sole function of a servant is giving. And so in humility and generosity, you give without expecting anything in return. And that commentator went on to say, giving is the very essence of God himself. Think about it, he said, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit exist in giving relationship with one another. And it's actually out of that loving, giving relationship that creation is spun out. God doesn't create because he's lonely. God creates because he's giving. The creation comes into being, life comes into being. Relationship with God comes into being because God is a giving God, constantly pouring himself out, father to son to spirit, to us. It is the very nature of God to give. And so we, who are servants of God, give generously. We might even say, uh, a way to put it would be this. We talk about giving like giving of your time and giving of your money. But let's just take an area like serving somebody else, just being kind to them, right? What would it be like to be the sort of person who is wasteful with your kindness? Meaning, you're not serving somebody in order to be served back. You're not keeping a record or a tally. You empty the dishwasher just to do it as an act of kindness. You bring a meal to a friend just to bless them. You invite somebody to your home for dinner, not thinking they have to reciprocate, just to do it. Be wasteful with your kindness. And one of the areas that this presses on me is to be wasteful with our kindness is to serve and be kind to people we don't even like. My tendency is this. I am going to be willing to be very generous with my time and my energy with people I actually enjoy. But what about with annoying people? People that are a drag on you. Uncool people. People that weigh you down. People that can't pay you back in any way. If somebody in school is completely unknown, are you willing to give to them 
of your time, of your energy. I like to serve people who I like. But am I willing to give generously of myself to everyone? To be lavish, prodigal, wasteful with my kindness. A servant is. And one other one, a servant is anonymous. You know, a slave or a servant in that ancient world was a nobody. They were unknown, they were not meant to be seen, and they would never be recognized or praised. And so I need to ask the motives of my heart. Why is it that I might serve somebody else? Is it to get credit? Is it to prove that I'm the closest friend? Is it to know that I'm needed by them? Or is it for God's glory and out of love for that person? You know, one of the best ways that you see this sort of anonymous, no credit servanthood is when you watch somebody doing elder care. You know, when you care for an aging mom or dad, and as they go down in dementia or Alzheimer's and you still care for them, and they get to a point where they don't talk anymore, and you're the one changing them and feeding them. Who knows about that? Who gives you credit for that? They can't even respond in thankfulness at some point. That's giving without expecting in return. That's the generosity of anonymity. Most of us want the praise. Most of us want the reaction. Most of us want the credit for whatever it is that we're doing. There was an author and speaker 30 or 40 years ago who talked about how she loved, loved, loved being in the limelight. She loved getting credit and praise and being up in front of people. But in a poem that she wrote, Ruth Harms Culkin, in a poem called I Wonder, the second half of her poem was this. I love it when all the great things happen to me and when I'm praised, but how would I react, I wonder, If you pointed to a basin of water and asked me to wash the calloused feet of a bent and wrinkled old woman day after day, month after month, in a room where nobody saw and nobody knew. I wonder if we could be selfless, humble, generous, anonymous servants. Why is it so hard? And how can we live like that? How could we be servants like this? You know what the answer is? Same answer every week here. It's Jesus. But I want to talk about the gospel, which we do every week here as well. Because it's not just Jesus as our example of how to do it, although he is the example of how to do it. It's Jesus as the power the very means to serve. Because if you don't start with the gospel, you're serving from the wrong motivation and you will never have the power of God working in you to transform you, to step into things you don't want to do naturally. But the gospel is very clear and he states it in these passages. First, it's when the disciples say, hey, we want to be at your right and left hand and Jesus responds to them and talks about a cup and then he talks about ransom. He says, Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? The cup 
was an Old Testament metaphor for the judgment and wrath of God for sin and evil. It's God's justice being executed. And then he goes on to say, for the Son of Man came to give his life as a ransom for many. That word ransom is an economic term that was used back then for when you paid to set a slave or a prisoner free. A payment was made to buy the freedom of a slave or a prisoner. Jesus is describing his purpose for coming, his purpose for dying on the cross. And it's this great irony. The irony is this. Jesus became a servant. He gave up his rights. He died in our place. He was the ransom for us. He paid for our freedom by his death. He drank the cup of wrath for our sin that we deserve. Why? That we, who are by nature slaves to Satan and sin and self, might be set free. Set free in order to become slaves of God, servants of one another. You know, every religious leader came to teach a way, to live as an example to follow. Jesus, on the other hand, came to be the way, to die as a sacrifice for us to receive. When you let that sink in and stop striving and achieving, and trying to attain your own purpose and meaning and glory, the gospel begins to be the power to this type of servanthood. You know, if Jesus is just a good example, then what you'll end up doing is serving, trying to be humble, trying to be generous out of fear. Or in order to get something. If I'm good, God has to reward me. Or to feel good. When I serve other people, they appreciate me, I feel better. But in the end, there's limits to your servanthood. And service and humility will be drudgery. But when the gospel begins to get a hold of you, and you think, I can't earn my salvation, then I'm no longer serving in order to attain God's favor. Nor do I serve in the gospel because I'm insecure and need recognition in order to feel superior to other people. See, the gospel is basically this. I need a savior. Somebody has to drink my cup. Somebody has to pay my ransom. It says that I am sinful and you are sinful. And so there's no grounds for any of us being proud or arrogant around each other. There's no grounds for trying to prove or defend our our record or our status No one is greater or more deserving than one another. I need a savior, therefore I look at everyone the exact same in humility. But the gospel is also, I have a savior. I am loved and accepted in Jesus Christ. So I can be confident and assured. I can forgive other people because I've been forgiven. I can give without return because everything I ever needed has been given me in Christ. I can love the unlovely and undeserving because God has done that for me. I'm no longer going around asking, are they worthy of my time? Because none of us are. I'm no longer asking, will it pay if I serve them? Because I don't need anything else apart from what Christ has given me. 
Jesus calls his disciples to live an upside-down sort of life, to find greatness in servanthood, to find their glory in giving up their pursuit of glory and pursuing God's alone. And that's the basic call of the gospel, that true greatness is found in being the least, the slave, the servant of all, even annoying people. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you humbled yourself. You gave of yourself. You served us by dying on the cross. Change us by the power of your Holy Spirit to want what you want of us. Empower us to give to sacrifice, to love others more than ourself. And humble us, Lord. Humble us to live for your glory and not our own. Amen. Take myself.